theyeshiva.net. Today's class is dedicated by Dina Dornbush. Thank you so, so much, and tremendous hatzlach and everything, and we really are grateful and very appreciative for your partnership and dedication. Parsha Shaiftim, the weekly Parsha, is a very fascinating portion, and one of its sections, close to the beginning, deals with what we would call the Parsha of the Melech, the king. It speaks about the possibility of appointing a Jewish king, and most importantly, the legislation that should define, that ought to define leadership, monarchy in Judaism. So let's see the first source. It's Parsha Shaiftim, Perik Yud Zion, Pasuk Yud Dalet. That's Devarim Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14. Moshe is speaking to the Jewish people, and he says as follows. I'll translate. When you're going to come to the land that Hashem gives you, and you're going to settle it, and you might say, Just like all the nations around me, I, I here is the collective I, the Jewish people, I want to appoint a king, we want a leader, we want a monarch. Just like all of the other nations have a leader. So the Pasa continues, You should appoint upon yourself a king, somebody Hashem will choose. But don't bring in a foreigner as a king. It should be a brother, meaning somebody from within your people, because leadership requires somebody who really understands the geist, the zeitgeist, the energy, the 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 characteristics of the people, it should be from amongst you. Rak, it's a big rak. However, here is legislation. This king should not have, personally, should not own many horses. The primary center for breeding the most gorgeous and powerful horses was Egypt. I'd want him to have many horses and then bring everybody back to Egypt in order to get more horses when Hashem said, do not go back to Mitzrayim. Yudzayim, loyar noshim. This king should not have many women. Not, not, should not take many wives for himself. Loyasur levavoy. His heart must not turn away from righteousness. V'chesev izov loyar Nor shall he acquire excessive silver and gold. I don't want him to be so rich and so affluent. And he finishes in Pasuk Chaf, Lebilti rum levave me'echaf. So that his heart shall never become haughty, become exalted, arrogant over his brothers. And that he should never turn away from the mitzvahs, from the commandments of Hashem, either going to the right or to the left. So that he may prolong his days as a king, he and his children, among the Jewish people. That's the parsha, the halachas, very brief, of the king. Indeed, hundreds of years later, and this took hundreds of years, it's exactly what occurred. And now we go from Torah to Nevi'im. Of course, the history of the Jewish people in Chumash ends 
with the passing of Moshe Rabbeinu, 40 years in the wilderness, and Moshe Rabbeinu passes away at the verge, at the border of going into Eretz Yisrael. That's where Chumash ends. Navi takes over from there. It begins with Yehoshua. Yehoshua who takes the Jewish people into the land of Eretz Yisrael after his master's passing, Moshe Rabbeinu. Yitzhiya Shmetzrayim, the exodus of Egypt, happened in the year 2448 since creation, 2448. 40 years later, they went into Eretz Yisrael, which would be 2,488. That's when Moshe passes away and Yeshua takes over. And then begins the book of Yeshua, and this is where the Nevi'im take over. Tanakh, Torah, Nevi'im, Ksuvim, Yeshua. But hundreds of years later, we have Yeshua, Shoftim, and then you have the Sefer Shmuel. And Shmuel Aleph, Perik Ches, Shmuel Aleph, Perik Ches, which is Shmuel 1, Chapter 8. We have the story of Shmuel Anavi being approached by the Jewish people and literally saying these words that Moshe Rabbeinu said might happen hundreds of years earlier because all these years there was no king. The Jewish people didn't have a king. And it was not essential for them to have a king. They had leaders, they had shoftim, they had judges, they had sources of inspiration and, and, and mentorship and guidance and halachic authority, Sanhedrin, but not a melech, a king. But what happens in Shmuel, in the times of Shmuel Hanavi, Shmuel the prophet is, that changes. And let's see the story in your next source. Shmuel Aleph Perik Ches Pasek Dalet. By Yiskapzu, Shmuel had two sons. Shmuel Hanavi had two sons, Yoel and Aviyah. Now Shmuel Hanavi, his reputation was undisputed. In fact, the Pasek says in Tehillim, we say it Friday night, Moshe Ba'aren B'chay Hanav, Shmuel B'kayre Shmoy. Moshe and Aaron were the servants of Hashem, the Kayanim priests, and Shmuel among the callers of his name. And the Gemara says that Shmuel is equivalent to Moshe and Aaron together. So that tells you something about Shmuel. His, his magnitude and his reputation was, was incredible. As sometimes happens, his children did not, live, <laughs> did not live up to their reputation. And the Tanakh, you know, is very blunt about people. Tanakh says they took bribes, and they were dishonest, and there was corruption there, and uh, the people saw it. And, uh, you know, Judaism and Jewish leadership must always be based on authenticity and truth, first and foremost. And they realized that Shmuel will not be able to be succeeded by his sons. They just don't have that integrity and that authenticity, certainly not relative to their father. So what happens is, the Tanakh says as follows, this is Shmuel 1, chapter 8, verse 4. By Yiskapzu kol zikne Yisrael, Shmuel haramasa. All the elders of Israel gathered, and they come to Shmuel who lived in a place called Ramah. He's called Shmuel haramasa. Vayabru, I love, they said, zakanta, you have grown old. And your children have not walked in your ways. Set up for us a king to be able to judge us and lead us like all the Goyim, like all the nations, like all the empires and the tribes around us. Almost verbatim echoing Moshe's words hundreds of years earlier in the wilderness where Moshe said one day they may say, Right? It was almost like Moshe said the words that they would later say, later say to Shmuel, or maybe they just said it because Moshe said it. Ramban discusses it here in the Chumash about the, 
the similarity in the words used by Moshe and used by the Jewish people when they speak to Shmuel. Shmuel is not very happy about the idea of a king. He knows the dangers of monarchy. History has learned very well the dangers of monarchy. You know, now 20, uh, what do they say? Hindsight is twenty twenty. Vision. Monarchy is very serious. A king has a lot of power. And power, as we know, corrupts. <laughs> and absolute power, what do they say? Corrupts absolutely. So Shmuel, Shmuel tells the Jewish people about the dangers, but they want a king. They want a king. And Moshe told them, Hashem agrees, as long as the king follows the legislation that the Torah articulates, you can have your king. So after they ask for the king, Shmuel acquiesces. Hashem says they can have a king. What happens next is the Tanakh deviates from the story. And from chapter 8 in Shmuel Aleph, we go to chapter 9. It's a whole chapter. And it's quite a strange, and you would think, an irrelevant story. It's certainly an interesting story. But in terms of the history and the theme, it seems... Far, it seems like just, from, as we say, from left field, irrelevant and strange. Basically, the prelude of how the first king of the Jewish people was coronated, was nominated by Shmuel Hanavi. It's a story about a young man who the Tanakh describes as excessively handsome and appealing. It's a story about lost donkeys. It's a story about young women in a conversation with this young man, as we will see. And it's a story about a prophet, Shmuel Hanavi. And the story occupies the entire ninth chapter of Shmuel Aleph. The entire Periktes of Shmuel Aleph is the story. What's the story? This is how the Tanakh introduces how the first king came about. Shmuel Aleph Periktes. Let's see the first few psukim. Vayihi ish binyamin. There's a man from the tribe of Binyamin. Ushmai Kish. His name is Kish. Ben Aviel, he's the son of Aviel. Ben Tzrer, who's the son of Tzrer. Ben Pchairas, Ben Afiach, Ben Ish Yemini. Gibar Chayel. He comes from important lineage, and he's a person of stature, of, of, of dignity, of valor. Veloi Hayabain. This man Kish had a son. Ushmai Shol. And the boy's name is Shol. And the Tanakh says, let me tell you about Shaul. Bachar, he's young. Bachar means young and chosen. V'toif, he's, he's good. V'ein ish mibnei Yisrael toiv mimeno. As the Mepharshim say, toiv here doesn't only mean toiv in character, he's good in character, but he's also, he's good looking, he's handsome. And there's nobody that as handsome as he is. M'shichmoi v'mayla g'voya mikol ha'am. From his shoulders and upwards, he was taller than any of the people. By the way, here is where the expression comes from, head and shoulders above others. It doesn't come from nowhere, it comes from this Pasuk, as many expressions in English. From his shoulders and up, he's Gavoya. So he's tall, he's appealing, he's striking, and he says, no, nobody is more handsome, nobody is more good-looking than him. The Tanakh wants us to know this. Okay, next. Kish, the father of Shaul, had donkeys. A bunch of female donkeys, or some donkeys, asoinos in the plural, and they got lost. So Kish tells Shaul his son, 
כך נוי תכוס אחד מהנעורים וקום לך בקש הסוינס. Take with you one of the farm boys, one of the lads, one of the young people who was one of their servants helping out in the home, אחד הנעורים, and go search for the donkeys. ויעבור בהר אפרים ויעבור בארץ שלושה ולא ימצאו. They pass the mountain of Ephraim and they traverse the land for three days looking for the donkeys and they don't find them. They pass a place called Shalayim, a place called Yemini, searching everywhere for the donkeys. They are nowhere to be found. They're gone. They come to a place called Tzuf. And Shoal tells the farm boy, he says, It's time to go back. We have to return back. Why? Because very soon, Tati, my father, our father, my father, is going to stop worrying about the donkeys and start worrying about us. <laughs> the dog Lano. No, where are, where are they? Where's my son Shaul and where are you? Where's the lad? That's what's going to happen. He's going to go and perhaps he's going to panic. He's going to be stricken by, by fear and terror and dread about what happened to us. So I think we don't have the donkeys. Let's go back. That's what he says. The farm boy tells Shaul, no, I don't think we should go back. And he says, there's an Ishalikim. There's a man of God who lives not far from here. He helps people. Let's ask him about the donkeys. Maybe he'll be able to help us. Shoal hesitates. Shoal doesn't want to go. Why? The Tanakh says, the reason he hesitates is because he says, let's say we go to this man, we have to bring something. We have to bring a gift. We don't have what to bring. The bread that we took has been used up because they have been on a journey for a long time. We don't have any present to give to this person. So therefore, we can't go to him. So the farm boy responds to Shaul, and he says, I have in my possession a reva shekel, a fourth of a shekel of silver. The common currency at the time was called a shekel. It was a certain coin with a certain weight of silver, anywhere between 8 or 11 grams of silver. And I have a fourth of a shekel. Silver in the fourth of a shekel, probably a much smaller coin, which in currency was a fourth of a shekel. And I will give it to this man of God so that he tells us where the donkeys may have gone so we could find them. The Pasuk continues, Pasuk Yud. Okay, if you got the money, <laughs> if you got the money, as we say, the Zag's good. He acquiesces. Let's go. And they walk, they travel to the city where the man of Elikim, the man of Hashem, is living. That's where they go. As they arrive to the city and they're going up the steps, Milo's are like the steps or the ramp, going up to the city. It's on a slope, so they have to go upwards. They meet several young women 
who are coming out of the city to draw water. Obviously, there was some well. It, of course, brings up the association. It reminds us of the story of Rivka. Eliezer meeting Rivka also comes out of the city of Haran to the well, the public well, where they drew water from. These young girls come out. Lishav Mayim, they're drawing water, whether they had a well or another source of water. And they find them. Vayayim Rulahen. So naturally, these two strangers, Shoal and the farm boy, turn to these young girls, and they say, Hayesh Bazeh Haraya. Is there a prophet here? Raya is a seer. You know, like a chayza, somebody who sees. A raya, it's a very interesting term for a navi, somebody who sees. Somebody, um, of course, it doesn't, they don't only mean somebody who physically sees, but somebody who sees. Somebody who really sees, sees beyond the veneer, beyond the facade, beyond the present. Hayesh bazeh Did we come to the right place? Is there a seer? S-E-E-R, a prophet here. Now, before I go to the next pasuk, what would you expect the girls to answer? Okay? It reminds me, there was once a guy in Elal, and he was in first class, and he was very excited that he had a first class ticket, and uh, he was going to Israel comfortably, you know, it's a long trip, and it's nice to have a comfortable seat. <laughs> and he's sitting there, and finally the flight attendant comes to him and says, would you like to have dinner? And he is, absolutely, I'm starving. And he's a first-class passenger, so he turns to her and he says, how many choices are there? She says, two. He said, what are they? She says, yes or no. You know, el right? So, uh, they ask the girl, they, Shoal asks, Shoal and his friend ask the girls, is there a seer? You would expect either yes or no. <laughs> you came to the right place, or you didn't come to the right place. But take a look at their response. And you have to realize that when the Tanakh inserts this response, it's because it wants us to know every detail. Pasuk Yud Beis. And the girls responded to them, to Shoal and the farm boy. And they said, yes, yes, there is, there is a prophet here. In fact, he is before you. He is in front of you. Maher Atta. Rush, hurry now, as we would say, this is your lucky day. He actually came home today. <laughs> they were well informed. Today he came to the city. So rush, why do you have to rush? The people are actually making a sacrifice today on a bama. Bama is like a high place, an elevated place, a platform. Remember, this is before there was a Beis Hamikdash, many, many years before, David HaMelech and Ashleim HaMelech, so there was a mishkan, there was a sanctuary. But there was a point that they could still do certain offerings in a bama, in a platform, in your own city. And today there's going to be a sacrifice there. And the girls continue. Okay. When you come to the city, because they were going up into the city and the girls came out to get water. You will find him before he goes up to the platform, to the bama, to eat. Because you have to understand that the people are not going to eat until he comes. You know why? Because he's going to be the one to make a blessing on the carbon. You see the relevance to what uh, they came to ask where Shmuel Hanavi is, and these girls are really giving him a presentation. 
You know why? He's going to be blessing the sacrifice. And only afterwards will the invited guests eat. Therefore, now, Alu, go up. For at this time, today, you will find them. This is what the girls tell Shoal and the farm boy. Yudalit, Vayalu, they go up, Ha'ir into the city. As they enter into the city, And who comes out to go up to the platform on the way to bless the offering? Shmuel. And now, like in parentheses, the Tanakh says, let me tell you the background. One day earlier, one day before Shaul came, Hashem has whispered into the ear of Shmuel, meaning he has revealed information to Shmuel, and he said, Tomorrow, Tomorrow I'm sending you a young man from Binyamin. You should anoint him as the leader on my people. Let him save my nation from the Philistines because I have seen their distress and their cry for this type of leadership has reached me. Shmuel sees Shaul coming into the city. Remember, Shmuel is, go- Shmuel is on the way to go to the Bama where everybody is having this meal with the carbon. Hashem says to Shmuel, Here is the man I spoke to you yesterday about. He is the one who's going to rule the nation. The Tanakh continues how Shmuel invites Shaul and the other boy to come to the feast. And when they speak about the donkeys, they want to speak about the donkeys, Shmuel right away says, even before they talk about it, don't be distressed about the donkeys of your father because they have been found already. And besides the fact you don't have to be worried about donkeys when you're going, you and your family are going to be elevated to such stature and prominence. And Shaul says, I think you got the wrong family. We're very simple people. The next morning, the morning after the feast, the Tanakh continues how Shmuel takes a vial, a jug of oil. He pours it on Shaul's head. This is the beginning of chapter 10. He kisses him, and he says, Hashem has anointed you to be the melech, the ruler over his nachel, over his inheritance, over the Jewish people. And Shaul HaMelech becomes the first king of the Jewish people, nominated and anointed by Shmuel Hanavi, by the direct instruction of Hashem that he is the right person. So Moshe's words, when you want a king, you should appoint a king, one of your brothers, the one Hashem chooses is the first time in history fulfilled, in the presence and the personality of Shaul Hanavi, which Shaul Hamelach, Shaul the King. But what I want to focus on today is the whole prelude to the story, the story with the donkeys. It's a charming story, but if you think about it, it seems a little strange. First of all, why was there a need to create this whole situation? where Shaul's father's donkeys get lost, and now his son has to look for them for three days, and then more days, and then 
while he's searching, he meets Shmuel Hanavi, the prophet Shmuel. The story could have been a lot simpler. Hashem tells Shmuel, appoint Shaul Hanavi as a king. In fact, that's what happens with the second king. With the second king, David HaMelech, what happens? It's not like David's, father's lo- David's father loses donkeys. And David goes searching for them, and he bumps into Shmuel Hanavi. And Shmuel Hanavi says, oh, by the way, you're looking for donkeys, but in the meantime, I'm going to make you a king. What happens is, later on, this is in, in chapter 16, Shmuel Aleph Perik Tazayin, a few chapters from now. Basically, Hashem tells Shmuel, fill your horn with oil. Fill, they used to have horns with oil. Fill your horn with oil. And I'm sending you to base Lechem, to Yishai, because there is among Yishai's sons a king, and you're going to nominate that king. And that's what Shmuel does. Hashem gives him an address, and he sends him to that address, and Shmuel Hanavi coronates David as the second king of the Jewish people. He says, go to Beis Lechem, to the house of Yishai, and you'll appoint one of his sons as a king. Here it's very different. Here it's a whole story with donkeys. Kish has to lose his donkeys, and Shaul has to go with his farm boy, and then meet Shmuel Hanavi almost by mistake. And then it goes to meet Shmuel Hanavi, and then he says, forget the donkeys, we have more important business, thank you for coming, you're the new king of the Jewish people. Now, even if it had to happen this way, this is how Hashem wanted it to happen, so it happened this way. That's how he met Shmuel Hanavi, different people's experiences, as we know every person's Life story is a different life story. But it's interesting how the Tanakh gives us so many details about the story that at first glance would seem not really relevant to the theme of the story. The main story is that Shaul was appointed as the new king of the Jewish people. The details of the donkeys, even if it happened that way, and all the nuances of the story that the Tanakh incorporates really seems superfluous. For example, do we have to know exactly where they went to search for the donkeys, how long the search went on for, the conversation between Shaul and the farm boy, I don't have bread, I don't have money, I can't give him a gift, and the farm boy says, no, I do have a gift, and then the whole conversation with the girls, like why is that relevant? It happened that way. He asked them, is there a prophet, and they gave him this long drasha, and this long lecture about why Shmuel is here and when he came and what he's going to be doing and go rush and you're going to find them and find them before and not after and where you're going to find them and how you're going to find them. Is it relevant to the story? Even if it happened that way. You know, when we tell a story, you say, a person arrived to this and this town and this is what happened. Now, it happens to be, maybe he stopped at a gas station before Waze and Google Maps to get directions. You remember the good old days when you told your husband to stop at a gas station, but he was smarter because he knew the directions. You remember, right? <clears throat> He's still smarter than Waze. But uh, then he was certainly smarter than the people in the gas station, and he ended up in Miami instead of in Butter Park or on the way to Miami. Now, is it really? Basically, he asked these girls for directions. They gave him a shmuas. Okay. <laughs> the Tanakh wants us to know this. Why is it relevant? You don't even have to mention it. They came and he met Shmuel. How he met Shmuel? He asked somebody for directions. He didn't ask somebody for directions. No, it's a, apparently it's in a very important part of the story. It could have even just said one Pasek. Kish lost his donkeys. Shaul went to look for them. He went to ask Shmuel and Shmuel made him a king. I want to now tune into one element, zoom into one element. And that's how those Na'arais, those young women, responded to Shaul and the farm boy. 
talk about redundancy. When anybody teaches communication in writing, even in speaking, but certainly in writing, they tell you, you don't repeat things, right? Even if in speaking we do repeat things, even if in speaking we do repeat things, okay? (laughs) In writing, in speaking, it's also superfluous. Words should be defined and articulate. Say what you want to say. They once said, if you're getting up to speak, tell them what you're going to tell them, then tell it to them, then tell them what you told them, and sit down. But in writing, this law is much more important. When you read an article, and some of you are, uh, are uh, assiduous readers, I know, you read a book or you read an article, you know immediately if this person has mastered the art of writing or not. One of the weakest points that you can see in a writer is redundancy, repetition. You said it already. I got it. And the fact that you're using another adjective doesn't necessarily allow you to say it again. If it's unnecessary, it's excessive, it's superfluous. I just did that. It was superfluous to use the word superfluous. Okay, I stand corrected. Certainly if you're using the same adjectives, at least change around the words. Now, I want to study for a few moments this response of these young women to Shaul. Shaul and the farm boy asked a simple question. Is there a prophet here? That's a question of three words. Is there a seer? Look at their answer. Okay, go back to Pasekut Bays and let's study their answer. They answered. Yes, there is. Done. <laughs> Point the finger and show me where. That's it. Hine. Behold, Lefanacha, he's in front of you. Okay, thank you. Mahirata, guys, got a rush. Kiayoim, <laughs> now here goes Agansid Russia, completely irrelevant. Kiayoim Balayir. He came to town today. And if he came yesterday, and if he came a month ago, and if he never left, they didn't ask these girls to give them a diary and a journal about the news in the shtetl. Who came and who went and who's supposed to come and why. Now they give him a whole new drasha. Let me tell you why he came home. <laughs> First of all, I didn't ask you if he came home. I'm just looking for him. I'm just looking for him. People come here all the time, right? They look for people. Yeah? They say, Where can I find this? So you say, He's there. Takes a second. You move on. Yeah? These girls were busy. They had to bring water back to the house. You say, by the way, he's here. But let me tell you, he had a flight yesterday. The flight was delayed. So therefore, he's still here. And let me tell you why he was going. Okay? It's completely irrelevant. But they tell the whole story. And what's the story? There's a big sacrifice today on the bomb on the platform. A big sacrifice. So he had to come home. He came home. (laughs) Okay, so now we know why he's home. Now they continue. When you come to the city, you're going to find them. But make sure, catch them before the meal. By the way, nobody eats before Shmuel comes. Can anybody explain how that's relevant to the question? We asked the Shmuel around. Nobody eats before he comes. And let me tell you why nobody eats. He has to make the bracha. He has to make the bracha. And by the way, it's one of the sources that the Gemara brings from the Tanakh, that you make a bracha before you eat. Before you eat the Zevach, he's going to make a bracha. 
And now after this whole presentation, they say, now, Alu, it's time to go up. Today you're going to find him. Whenever you see such a long, winding conversation recorded in Tanakh, the student's ears have to be triggered and ask, what is going on here? How do I know it's a good question? Because the Gemara asks this question. The Gemara asks, why did they bother to get into all these details? Why couldn't they just give him directions? And even if they did, some people have these, you know, some people are very, what's the word? Uh, wordy, forthcoming, social creatures. You meet them, right? You meet them and you never saw them before. And two hours later, they're still telling you everything about their life, etc. Fine. But the Tanakh incorporates it. In other words, we all have to know about it. So if you look in your next source, Brachos Daf Memches Amid Beis. The tractate dedicated to blessings is Brachos, the first tractate of Mishnayos. And in page 48, Memches speaks about making Brachos blessings and brings this story that Shmuel is going to make a blessing on the food. And the Gemara asks a question. V'kol kach lama. Why did they give him such a long speech? Why? Why? And the Tanakh wants us to know about it. And the Gemara gives three fascinating answers, completely different answers. Answer number one. By nature, women are verbal communicators. Shmuel's question consisted of three words. The answer consisted of around 30 or 40 words. They like to share. They like to discuss. They like to explore. They like to express. They like to verbalize. They don't run into caves. They don't grunt. They don't say, I don't want to talk about it. They say, I want to talk about it. I'm not sure what Brani is saying. They like to share verbally. So basically, what is the Gemara saying? Yeah, for the men reading the story... It sounds redundant. It sounds superfluous. You said it already. You said it already. You already told me you had a hard day. Right? Have it happened? That's the point. But for the women, for the women, the Gemara say it's a way of almost clarifying, clarifying, articulation is a way of clarifying the idea. And, and this has to be explained because psychologically this is a very profound observation. It's so profound observation that it's often necessary for couples to understand this in marriages and it can be very helpful. It's, it's not a generalization in every case and there are always exceptions, no question. But it's a very common feature. If it doesn't apply to every individual, fine. It's not a gzeris hakosov. It's not a halacha for every single person. But it's a very common feature. For many men... Speech is a phase which comes after he finished developing the thought in his mind and in his heart. People often don't understand that. Speech comes after that. I already made my decision. I already know what my decision is. I already know what my position is. Or I think I know what it is. Of course, my wife will convince me that I'm wrong. But at least I think I know what my position is. And then I speak about it. So if I said it once, I don't have to repeat it. And if you said it once, 
You really don't have to repeat it. For women, speech is part of the thought process. Speech is part of the thought process. It's part of the experiencing processes. I don't just say to tell you what I decided. The talking is part of the tachlis. It's part of working through the experience emotionally and intellectually. And there's a reason for this Kabbalistically, because women are rooted in the sphere known as malchus, malchus, royalty, which is femininity. In Zoyer it says malchus peh. Malchus represents the art of verbal communication. So the verbal communication is part of identity. It's not like, I have a speech prepared and now I'm just saying it. Why are you saying it twice? You said what you want to say. The speech is part of the identity. The speech is part of working through the very experiencing. In other words, the verbalizing of the idea is part of clarifying it. It's part of the experience. So of course, you repeat it again. And then again, and then again. Just like if I'm rethinking something, why are you thinking about it again? Because I have to think about it again. I have to work this through. Why are you feeling it again? Because I'm feeling it. What, what should I do? Speaking is an extension of that. So this insight by the Gemara is not a small insight. It's a very, very important insight because it can explain to many husbands what's going on. A lot of them often are perturbed. They don't understand it. It helps them understand why their wives don't particularly appreciate when they say, you said that already. You said that already. In fact, you told it to me yesterday. In fact, you said it last year. I got it. That's the first answer in Gemara. You have to understand this distinction. So, yes, you're reading it. The man is reading Navi. He says it's redundant. The Gemara says from their perspective, there was no redundancy here. (laughs) They were working through the process. Number one. Now come to the second explanation. Shmuel Amar. Shmuel said, This is quite an explanation. The Tanakh told us that Shoal was absolutely beautiful. Head and shoulders above the rest of the people. His features were dazzling. The Tanakh says, you know what? They wanted to keep Shoal there as long as possible. They enjoy talking to him. They wanted to gaze at his beauty, so they made sure that the conversation should not be to the point. The conversation should not be short. We all understand this sometimes. I'm engaging in a conversation. The conversation is not the objective. The objective is, I don't want the person to leave. That's what Shmuel explains in the Gemara. This is not Shmuel Hanavi. This is Shmuel, the Talmudic sage. Now comes a third explanation. Absolutely marvelous. Rabbi Yochanan Amar Rabbi Yochanan says, malchus One leader cannot touch the tenure of the other leader even by a strand of hair. Which means every leader has his or her time Ordained by heaven. No kingship can touch another kingship. Before its time is up. What's the connection? Shmuel Hanavi was the leader of the Jewish people up to this point. Now he was transmitting, he was passing the baton to a new person, Shaul HaMelech. But the time has not yet come 
for Shaul to assume leadership. Shmuel's tenure, Shmuel's um, time of leadership has not ended. Shmuel was destined to be the leader for another few minutes. Shaul was not yet ready, heavenly. Heaven decided it's not yet the time for Shaul to be the leader. So what happens? So the girls keep up. They hold up Shoal in conversation. Not for a long time. Maybe for a few seconds, maybe for a few minutes. Because the length of this conversation was the time necessary to delay the monarchy to be given to Shoal in the perfect time. You'll say, come on, it's a difference of a few minutes. There's a filukim eloi nima. These things, the details are very important. Nima is a strand of hair. That means you're talking about a very small amount of time. Now it's not whether the question that the girls know this consciously or not know it consciously. But somehow they felt this. Why they felt it, you can explain it in many ways. Or God made it that way. But the point is, this long conversation was extremely precise, and the Tanakh wants us to know it. So every detail recorded is essential to understanding of the narrative. Even this long, winding response of the young women to Shoal and the farm boy. So we have three explanations. One is, it defines the Tanakh is teaching you something about the chemistry of different genders. You have to respect that. You have to appreciate it. Shoal's question is three words. Their response is much longer. Number two, they were dazzled by Shoal and they wanted to continue talking to him. Number three, they needed to do this because the Malchus of Shmuel was not over yet and the Malchus of Shoal can't begin. If the Gemara is so perturbed about these two verses, about the girls, what they said, the question now becomes even stronger. Do I have to have a whole chapter about donkeys? How is that relevant to the story? Even if it happened, I have to know everything about the donkeys? How is that relevant to the story of Shaul being appointed the king? And here we see the precision, the beauty, and the holistic quality of Torah and of Yiddishkeit. You cannot appreciate the story of Shaul and the donkeys if you first don't learn in Parshat Shoftim what a king is. Everything in Torah is interconnected, interlaced, integrated. In Yiddish it's called geknipt und gebunden. It's his achtos, it's his kalalus. It's all connected. If you study Parsha Shoftim about the qualities of Jewish leadership, you can then appreciate every detail of the story about the first Jewish king. We started the class by reading a section from Shoftim before we went to the Navi. Hashem says they want a king, they can have a king. But there's legislation. And if we remember, essentially there were five demands made of every future king. And by the way, I should just say, not just king, but also queen. Because there were times in Jewish history that the rulership was given to a female. We even have in Bayesheni, there was the famous Shlemtzi and Hamalka who was actually considered very righteous. That's from the family of the Hashmanayim. So this legislation refers to any king. The bottom line is that there are five demands. What are the five demands? If you go back again to the first source, I'll just remind you. The first thing he says is, 
Mikerev Achichatasimalachamelach. You have to appoint a king from among your brothers. He can't be a foreigner, somebody who's not your brother. What does this mean? Even a ger, somebody who came from outside and converted to the Jewish people. And we know that in many ways a convert is considered far holier. And the Torah 36 times tells us, be very respectful to the ger. The Rambam says all Jews trace their lineage to Avram Yitzhak and Yaakov. And the ger traces his or her lineage directly to Hashem. Nonetheless, Malchus is something different. The leader has to be what you call a homegrown tomato. I don't know if I can express myself that way. Or a homegrown potato if you want. By the way, the United States adopted a similar law. You probably know and remember the tension that was triggered between Barack Obama and Donald Trump. The question was, where was the President of the United States born? Just like the President has to be a certain age, President has to be married. Why? We don't respect young people. We don't respect people who are not married. There's a certain experience that you have after a certain experience you have when you're married. Somebody who grew up in a certain country, a Jew who grew up among Jews, you, you, you just, there's a certain, if you're going to be a leader, you have to feel the people. You have to understand the people. It's not you're good, it's not that you're not good if you're a stranger, you're a foreigner. You shouldn't take it that way. It's just a leader of that magnitude needs to come from among the people. You have to know their pain, you have to know their sensitivities, you have to be empathetic. That's why the Ebenezer asks the famous question, why Moshe Rabbeinu, the first leader of the Jewish people, did not grow up among Jews? It's a very astonishing thing. A melech has to be from your brothers. Now Moshe was obviously a full Jew, but he grew up among non-Jews. And the Ebenezer says, Hashem It's one of the secrets of creation. And then he gives two reasons. We once gave a class. One reason is, he said, if he would have grown up among Jews, they wouldn't respect him. Everybody would tell him that they used to babysit for him and they remember him in their pampers and I was, I was your first great teacher and you used to cry. When did you become a Navi suddenly? I remember when you were a little kid and you made trouble in shul. You loved candies. You still like candies? A Navi Be'ira, you can't be a prophet in your own city. Moshe came from outside. Ooh, 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 ooh. The second thing that Ebenezer says, which is pretty haunting, is if Moshe would have grown up among Jews, he would have had a slave mentality. He could have never staged a revolution. Because he would have grown up among uh, slaves who were down, downtrodden and dejected and crushed. Not, not, not their fault. But he wouldn't be able to have an expansive mindset to overthrow Parai. But that's a Kiddush. Usually the king has to be from among your brothers. That's rule number one. Rule number two... The king may not acquire many horses from himself, for himself. So he shouldn't bring them back to Egypt. That's rule number two. Rule number three, he can't take many wives for himself. Even in a time when polygamy was not forbidden, more women than men, and a woman voluntarily, you can't force somebody into marriage, but he can't take too many. Number four, he should not acquire excessive silver and gold. And what was number five? His heart shall not grow haughty, arrogant over his brothers. He shouldn't turn away from the mitzvahs of Hashem. What's the common thread of all these five legislations? All these five laws. 
Number one, from among your brothers. Number two, not many horses. Number three, not much gold and silver. Not many wives. And number five, don't become arrogant. Don't become a Baldaiva. Don't start feeling superior to your brothers and exploit them and manipulate them. And don't go away from halacha. And the common denominator is, as we said, power is dangerous. The first one to recognize this was the Torah. Power is dangerous. Sometimes it's necessary. A king has power. A leader has power. But you have to know that if power doesn't have limits, it can be extremely dangerous. So if a person's power increases, their moral sense may diminish. It's a fact of life. Why? Azai. If my power increases, my moral sense may actually decrease in almost in a commensurate way with power increasing. And we've seen this in history over and over again. So a Jewish king who's given all this power has to remember that he is ultimately a servant. He's a servant of the people and he's a servant of the Rebbeinah Shalom. And therefore, his power is limited and he is not above the law. There's a book by Paul Johnson called The History of the Jews. Paul Johnson is not Jewish. He's what you would call a philo He likes Jews, he's a Christian. He's a brilliant historian. He wrote a book called The History of the Jews, Paul Johnson. So I once read it, I read the introduction, and he said, I asked myself, what are some of the key contributions of the Jewish people to humanity? And he says some very interesting points, and you hear it from an outsider's perspective. So it's not like coming from, you know, from any biased point of view. He's discussing it from a non-Jewish perspective. He has no skin in the game. He's not a Jew. He's not talking about himself or his family or his Zayd or his Bab. And he says that one of the contributions of Judaism to civilization was introducing the idea that nobody is above the law. He says that idea was completely foreign in the ancient world. There was always a king who was a demigod. He himself is a little god. Of course I'm above the law. The law doesn't apply to me. The regular laws of justice, tzedek, yosher, doesn't apply to me. He says in Judaism that was gone. Moshe Rabbeinu is not above the law. He's the greatest prophet. Avram Avinu. The greatest of the great of the great. And truly virtuous people. But nobody is above the law. Nobody can say, I decided I want to do it. Nobody tells me what to do. I don't like you. And he, 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 he is in awe of that idea. We take it for granted. Of course nobody... Moshe Rabbeinu is allowed to break the Shulchan Aruch. Because <laughs> he feels like it. There's no such a thing. You're going to tell me what to do? The moment the greatest Navi in the world violates the Halacha, ice gone! Shai of Misa. If a Navi, there's a Halacha, if a Navi says to break a mitzvah, to break a Halacha, it's completely forbidden. Unless it's a hiras, sure, like Elio, one of he said, if it's a temporary directive, and even then can't be avoid the Zorah. David HaMelech. There's a whole story of David and Basheva. We spoke about it on Shavuos. Nasan Hanavi comes into David HaMelech, right? And tells him the famous story with the sheep and the poor person. And David HaMelech says, the one who stole the sheep should die. And Nasan Hanavi says, Atah Ha'ish, you're the man. Think about in the ancient world, Somebody coming into a king <laughs> and saying that. You came out with a head shorter. 
Think about going into a person like Stalin and telling him such things. You didn't survive within the hour, you were dead. But in Judaism, it didn't work that way. This, spe- this prophet could speak to the king. You could speak truth to power. So that's a very, very powerful, very powerful idea. So there's a common denominator of all of these, of all of these, uh, all of these features, of all these laws. That's why he can't acquire so many horses. What's the idea of horses? Remember, horses in the ancient world represented strength and represented power. Horses were the main, one of the main animals, mammals used in war, in combat. In ancient times, not only in ancient times, even in modern times. And horses represented strength and ferociousness and also beauty and power. And there was a connection between the the rider and the horse. So since the king is not above the law, he can't just own scores and scores of horses to display his strength and power. He can't just take all the women he has a liking to. Now contrast that with Achashverosh. You go to the Megillah. You read Achashverosh, and you see what happened with Achashverosh. You see the contrast. Achashverosh, he wanted to kill Vashti, kills Vashti. Now every woman from the empire has to come see Achashverosh. That's why Esther was taken to Achashverosh. The king can't own too much money. He has to remain humble. Why? Because your power is not absolute. Your power was a gift. It was given from Hashem to serve Hashem and to serve the people. And the moment you lose sight of that, you're not entitled to be a king. There's a fascinating halacha, Meseches Brachas also. Every Jew by Shemana bows. We kneel and we bow. say, Baruch, Ata, and by Hashem you lift up your head. And we do it in the beginning of Shemana Esra, Adem the Shemana Esra. The halacha is, a melech is different. If you're davening with a king in Shul, Kivon Shekara, the moment he kneels and bows down in the beginning, Baruch Atah, Shuv Einoi He doesn't lift up his head till the end of Shemineser. It wasn't easy for a king to daven Shemineser. We go like this, and then you stand straight. The king was down a whole time. If you wanted to throw lemons on him, it was a perfect time. He was down a whole time. Why? I don't understand. I'm a regular person. We're all standing straight and davening, and he's completely down. The answer is exactly. Because he's a king, he's going to be down all Shemineser. Because he's a king. It's not when you have power, you, have, you, you need to have humility. It's much deeper than that. His power comes because of the humility. If you're truly humble, you're entitled to have power because it's not your own. That's the vision of leadership from a Jewish perspective. And then you can have absolute power because it's not yours. <laughs> then I'm not afraid. So HaMelech Kivan Shekara Shuvin these laws for a king in the ancient world were revolutionary. Even in today's world, they're sometimes revolutionary. Because you really have to internalize this. Oh, so now look at this in its own inimitable way as the Tanakh starts to paint the profile of the first person who Hashem chose to be the first king of Yisrael of the Jewish people, Shaul HaMelech. It tells us a story. But it's not just a story. If you focus on the story, you will see how all of these qualities that are described in Chumash are now described in this person. So every detail of the story is not just a detail of an interesting story about donkeys. It's actually sketching the profile of Shaul through a story. 
And this you have to understand about the Tanakh. Most other religions or, philosoph- or nations that have philosophical books, it's books that are written in the form of philosophy. The Tanakh is written in the form of stories. But the stories, each story is really painting a picture of an idea, of a perspective. You always have to see the stories that way. There's no story that doesn't have behind it, the the story is a representation of profound ideas. Here too, it's not a story about donkeys, it's a story about leadership. It's a philosophy of leadership. It's mentorship about leadership. It's telling you what leadership is. How? Through a story. And we know why. When it's told through a story, it's integrated, it's internalized. So first of all, it tells us that Shaul came from the tribe of Binyamin. That's how it starts off. Shmuel Aleph Perik says, there was a man from Binyamin, his name was Kish, and it goes through his whole lineage, and he has a strong Shaul. That's the first thing. So we have the first quality of the king. He's a home-growing personality. He could have a real feel for the people. He's no outsider. That's number one. Number two, we read the story and we see that Shaul was broke. The man had no money. He didn't even have a shekel. He didn't even have a fourth of a shekel to give a gift to Elisha. Ironically, the lad who accompanies him, who's not from the family, he's a farm boy, he helps out on the farm, he helps out in the field, he is the one (laughs) who appreciates the value of money more than Shoal. In fact, he has some of it to spear and give to Shmuel when they want to ask him where the donkeys are. So we can now appreciate the significance of this detail in the story. It's not just the detail. Shaul said, we can't go to Shmuel. We don't have any money. I don't have anything. I had a little bread. I finished with my bread. Shaul, why don't you have a little extra money? Come on. That's his mindset. He doesn't appreciate the value. He doesn't have it. The farm boy has more money than him, even though he's not from the family. And he's the one who talks about the money. So basically, such a type of person is likely not to get intoxicated by the royal treasury. And that's extremely important. Now it becomes clear why it was so important. It seems a little strange. Let's say the girls were dazzled by Shaul's beauty. I get it. So what's the Tanakh trying to tell us? Number one, you have to understand people. You have to understand people. You know, sometimes when we're not, when we don't address the real nature of people, so when people experience that, they feel you know, I always tell teachers and yeshivas and girls' schools, parents, there comes a point you have to have real conversations with your children because they're going to learn about these things. But you want them to learn about it from sacred sources because if not, their entire mindset could be misconstrued. So refinement doesn't mean I don't talk about any facts of life because when somebody faces those facts of life, they're often lost. I deal with this, with the tragedies of this situation. So we see this very clearly in Torah. The Gemara is telling us, yeah, they were awestruck by Shoal. But there's something much deeper that is being told here. It's not just a very fascinating fact of life. They just wanted to talk, talk, and talk, and talk, and not let this boy leave. That's one point. But there's something else. If they were so hypnotized by Shoal's beauty to the point that they would invent anything they could in this conversation, Talk about Obama, talk about Carbonus, talk about Brachas, talk about him coming, he going, he missed the flight, he's going on a flight, he bought a ticket pre-corona, after corona, you need masks, there's lines in the airport, there's no lines in the airport, go catch him fast, he's coming, nobody eats before him. Whatever you can, just to continue this conversation going. 
and therefore they wanted to stay longer with them. Let's see what's Shoal's response to these girls. You don't think about that. They spoke and spoke and spoke, and what's his response to the girls? The Tanakh says, they finished answering his question, and what's the next scene? you Dalad? He just left. By <laughs> That's important. That's why the Gemara tells the story. Yes, there's a story about the birds and the bees, but it's a story about Shoal's response. Shoal didn't utilize his exquisite splendor to exploit people who don't belong to him. He did not do that. He would not exploit these young women in any which way, even in conversation, without action. This is very, very important for a king. A king who has so much access. Look at Akashmerish and you understand how important this is. You see the contrast. This man can be trusted as a king. So when the Torah says, He's not just here to have whatever he wants because he's the boss. Shoal can be trusted with that. Again, this was unheard of in the ancient world and sometimes even in today's world. There's something else. As they're traveling and they can't find the donkeys, he's communicating with the farm boy, but he's actually consulting him. He speaks to this farm boy and says, let's go back. Not only that, he follows the farm boy's advice. The farm boy says, we're not going back. He says, we got to go back. And he follows his advice. Usually, this is not the regular relationship between the family prince and the slave. Here we see the humility. For those who understand the institution of slavery or know anything about it in America or anywhere else, you understand what that means. Shoal is not a user. Shoal is not arrogant. Shoal is a person. He's a human being. There's a farm boy. Not only does he take counsel, he consults him, but he listens to him. And then there's a detail, and you have to give... I always, You'll forgive me if I say this. Maybe it's not so respectful. But you have to give credit to the Chazal how they saw this nuance. When Shoal wants to return home, what does he tell the farm boy? He says, let us go. You know why? Because my father is going to stop worrying about the donkeys as he's going to start worrying about, I would expect him to say, he's going to start worrying about me. <laughs> You're not his son. I'm his son. <laughs> You're a farm boy. You're an employee. He doesn't say that. One word, he says. Take a look at the word. It's pasik. Pasik. Uh, pasik hey. He's going to worry about us. You're a part of the family. That's one word, but it's a word. It shows a mindset. He's going to worry about us. He worries about me, but he also worries about you. Now this doesn't mean to say that his father didn't have a different relationship with Shaul than he had with him, but it means you have value. You have dignity. You're not just a shmata in the family. You do what we want. The dog, Lanu. He's going to care about me and he's going to care about you together. So this means that Shoal has the qualities of a leader you're going to be able to trust. The humility, the sensitivity, the dignity, the empathy, the morality, the righteousness, the virtue. And take a look how the Chacham and the Chazal put this in the next source, the last source. Paisefte Brochus Perigdalet. 
Shaul was a king because of humility. Where do you see it? Shenemar. Pen yechdal ovi mina asoynos vidbog lonu. Shokal avdei boy. The servant became equivalent on the same scale like him. Vidbog lonu. Finally, the entire story is about donkeys that are lost. If you read through the Tanakh, and this is reality, of course, even if you don't read, the most powerful animal that was used by people, domesticated animal, is always the horse. The horse was used by mighty empires and armies in battle. It was used in wars and in combat. The horses were used to display their glory. You look at Parai, you look at Sisra, you look at Achashverosh, Pare is always with his horses, called Sus Rechav Bokhar. And in the Shira, we speak a lot about the horses, Sus Vereichvay Ramavayam. Achashverosh had the Sus Asherachav Alavamelech, the horse on which the king would ride, and that's what Haman wanted to go on. It ended up by Mardachai. Sisra with his horses. Why? Because the horse was the symbol of glory and power in ancient warfare. In fact, the horse is mentioned 137 times in the Tanakh. 137 times in Tanakh. The Gematria of Kabbalah. A hundred times, a hundred times it's mentioned in the context of enemies of the Jews employing their horses to destroy the Jewish people. A hundred times around, approximately, of 130 times mentioned, it's in war. We say it in Tehillim, Kapitel Chav, everybody knows this Pasuk, Eile Barechev, Ve'ele Basusim, V'anachim Shem Hashem Naskir. They fight with chariots and with horses. Because the horse was the F-16 of yore. That's why the Torah says the king should not own so many horses. Of course, the king can buy horses for his military. That's important. But personally, he can't own so many horses. Why? What do I care? We don't say he can't own so many donkeys. We don't say, What about the donkey? The donkey is associated with one person. Schayr, the prophet, describes Mashiach. Mashiach is a poor man. How do you know he's a poor man? He's riding on a donkey. Why does it mean you're poor? In today, you'd call it an alter shmata. You know, you look at the cars. <laughs> he won't be able to lease a new car. Not a BMW and not even a Toyota. And not even a Lincoln. A chamar. An alter taranta, as your grandmother would say. Or an alter shmata. Oni v'reichem al chamar. Chamar is a humble donkey. Mashiach is not coming on a horse. <laughs> not even a camel, a gummel. Avram was wealthy. He sent, he sent Eliezer with ten donkeys. The donkey is the humble animal. It's the animal that accompanied the life, not of Parai and Sisra and Achashvedesh, but of our forefathers, of the Ovis and the Imoyas. Avram and Yitzchak go to the Akedah with a donkey. Vayachvish is When Yaakov's sons go down to Egypt, they don't have food. What do they take? They take donkeys. To purchase grain. Moshe takes his wife and two children back to Mitzrayim. Not a horse. He takes them on donkeys. When the trader in Parshish Kisetse next week speaks about Hashavah Saveda, returning a lost item to its owner, 
It mentions a lost donkey, a chamor that's lost. In fact, the donkey is the only non-kosher animal that has a special mitzvah, that when a donkey owned by a Jew gives birth to its first male calf, to something called pidya and pepe chamor, you redeem it with a sheep, and you give the sheep to the kayan, and then you can keep the donkey. Shoal searching for the donkeys that belongs to the family is an important part of the story. This is a humble family. It's a family that has a few donkeys. That's what it has. They're donkey riders. There is simplicity in this family. There's humility in the family. And they don't have a surplus of donkeys. A few donkeys got lost. Next! These are their donkeys. They're lost. We have to go find them. We don't have anything left. So here the Tanakh is describing the profile of true leadership. I should just add in parentheses, everything is zelo umaza, everything has a counterpart. Shoal's humility will also be his undoing. Because in a way he becomes too humble. And as a result of that he's affected by the opinions of the masses when it comes to Amalek. He says, I was afraid of the people, I was afraid of the nation. Because the balance is a very delicate balance. On one hand, the king has to have ultimate humility, but ultimate humility needs to translate also in ultimate confidence. Not confidence from my ego, but confidence as an ambassador of the people and as an ambassador of Hashem. And that's where humility can become sometimes very lethal if it's misconstrued, if it's misused. So even though humility is such a powerful quality, humility can also become the undoing of a leader when he cannot be decisive and take a position that's sometimes extremely unpopular, but knowing that this is the right thing to do. But there's one more point which brings it all together, and that is Shoal's father's donkeys are lost. Could have just said they had donkeys. They're lost. And Shoal searches for them with a farm boy. Could have told his father, Tati, <coughs> I have better things to do. We see Shoal was a great man. He was the first Melech that Hashem chose. He became a Navi afterwards. His father sends him, he says, Tati, send another farm boy. Let them go search for the donkeys. He doesn't. He goes himself with the farm boy to search for the donkeys. This too is the quality of a Jewish leader. Because there are donkeys who are lost, and Lahavdil, there are people who are lost. Hashavah Saveda, returning a lost item, exists with items. If somebody loses a watch, or a pen, or a telephone, or a donkey. But there's also a deeper Hashavah Saveda. Somebody loses themselves. If somebody loses their soul, if somebody loses their identity, people are also lost. The Gemara says, a fool is somebody who loses what you give him. So the Magad of Mizrich says, Hama'abed ma'ashanoisnamloi. Ma is mem hey. It's the gematria of Adam. Aleph dalad mem is 45. Aleph dalad mem, 44. Hama'abed ma'ashanoisnamloi. I lose my Adam, the Adam inside of me. I lose my ma. V'nachnu ma. Chachma kayach ma. Sometimes a person loses their own spark, their own core, their own confidence. People who are lost physically or mentally or psychologically or emotionally or spiritually. If Shaul is ready to go himself and search for a lost donkey, 
and not delegate it to another farm boy. And he's going to go himself with a farm boy who's of a completely different caliber, so to speak, than him, and equate himself to him. Then we know he won't compromise and won't forfeit his responsibility to find any lost person, any lost Jew. So even a Jew, a person struggling with their identity, struggling with themselves, even if they may be completely lost to their family or to their people or their community, Shaul himself, without sending people, is ready to go on a search for them. And the key is a donkey. The Gemara says something very, very interesting about a donkey. The Masechus Shabbos, Tafnun Gimel 53. A donkey is cold in July and August. A donkey. Everybody that comes a point, even if you're cold the whole year, right? July and August, hopefully you're not cold. MS? Nobody? You're not cold. <laughs> Certainly if the air conditioner is not working well, it helps. Everybody is shivering. Everybody, a, a donkey is cold in Thomas. Everybody is schwitzing. Schwitzing, give me the AC, get me into the water, and the donkey is cold, it's freezing. What does this mean? Spiritually, the morale says the word chamar is the same letters like the word chaymer, materialism. If I'm in a, such a materialistic state that I'm always cold, the sun is shining, <laughs> there's so much light, there's so much warmth. Shemesh umagen Hashem alikim. Says in Tehillim Pedal that Hashem is defined as the sun, but I'm cold. I'm cold. I'm detached. I'm apathetic. I'm indifferent. And I can get lost to my coldness. I can get lost to passion, to warmth, to vitality, to relationships. Shaul will not give up, even on the lost donkey. And here we see again how everything is connected. How did Hashem test Moshe Rabbeinu for his leadership? What does it say? Moshe Moshe was a shepherd. So what does the Medrash say? He had all the flock of Yisrael and one goat escaped. And what did Moshe do? He went searching for the goat. So the first Jewish leader and the first Jewish king are introduced by searching for an animal that's lost. And not an expensive animal. A sheep and a goat is not the horse of a Kazakh. It's a sheep and a goat. A donkey is anivereich v'alachamar. Both of them went to search. Hashem said, if this is how they treat animals, I could trust them with my people. Moshe put him on the shoulders, put the goat on the shoulders and said, I didn't realize you were thirsty. Let me bring you to the water. At last, we see one more very powerful message in the story. And that is as follows. In life, we are sometimes summoned to a task that seems so menial, so below my dignity, like searching for lost donkeys. Do I have the time? Do I have the mental space? Is this my shlichus? Is this why my neshama came down to the world <laughs> to search for a lost donkey? I may tell myself, me, leper, I have nothing better to do with my life and search for forlorn female donkeys. They're lost. I'm sorry. I feel bad. But I was destined for better and greater. Spiritually as well. 
A person says, I have nothing better to do with my time than to reach out to this lost person and I have to go search one day and another day and a third day and a fourth day and go through this region and can't find and can't find and can't find. That's it, enough. My father's also going to start worrying. I want to go back home. I want to go back to my natural enclave. I really have to squander so much time and resources and money and mental energy to search for that lost soul who's lost. Let them not get lost. It becomes my responsibility, Ashabas Aveda. And I have to go down winding roads, whether physically or emotionally or psychologically, to search for a lost soul, for a lost Yiddish Neshama, especially somebody who is as cold as a donkey, even Bitkufas Tamas, and has reached the level of Chamer, of Chumrius, which is, which is bruteness, bruteness and, and, and dense physicality, dedicate time and energy and resources to help this lost, desperate soul. I'm sorry, it's a nice thing to do, but it's not for me. Ask somebody else. But wait. As Shoal goes searching for these donkeys, what happens in the process? He becomes the king of the Jewish people. Sometimes it's when I'm ready to embrace those tasks that seem so... It's beneath me. It's below my dignity. It's menial. It's not who I am. It's in that search, it's in that process that he actually becomes the Melech Yisrael. The first king of the Jewish people who is forever remembered as the first king of the Jewish people despite mistakes that followed. Ben Shol Shona Bemolcha, the Gemara says, he wasn't one year old when he became a king, but he was as pure as a one-year-old. But how did that happen? Through the search for the donkeys. Sometimes through this labor, where I think I'm falling apart, and I'm being disintegrated, and I'm so being disloyal to who I really am. And it's so humbling for me, like the donkey is so humble. Chamar. I'm become an Ani Chamar. That's how Mashiach emerges. It's not just he rides on a donkey, he emerges through the donkey. Through the Chamar, through the Chumriyas, through elevating and sublimating those who have fallen into the depths, sometimes of a spiritual or emotional, descending into that space. Through the Chamar, he himself is elevated. Sometimes through this labor I discover my real power, my real dignity, even my aristocracy, my kingship, my Malchus, my royalty. It's these efforts that allow me often to reinvent myself. And allow me to realize my ultimate potential. And allow a person to meet their true soul. Their true mission is fulfilled. Paradoxically, if Shaul would have remained home, on his comfortable couch, doing things that suited his unique, handsome identity, physically and spiritually. Because his physical beauty was a match for his spiritual beauty. They weren't two separate realities. He would have never discovered who he really is. He would have never discovered his malchus. But it was in that search for the donkey that at some point he came face to face with himself. He came face to face with discovering his true position as a true leader, as a true malchus. Have a wonderful week. Listen, you know, he writes from his perspective, but generally it's a tour de force. It's a tour de force about the glory of Claudius Rome. Avada. And this. You know, certain things. He, 
dismisses as he, he doesn't know everything. But uh, but generally speaking, I would say that it's uh, he's very very positive. But it's from another perspective. You're welcome. There's also another book. It's called The Gifts of the Jews. This is by an Irish author. His name is Kohel, I think. An Irish author called The Gifts of the Jews. Another masterpiece. He basically shows how all the most important words that define humanity today and have brought humanity to a different level of enlightenment came from the Jewish people. He's Irish. If you look up the gift... Kale, the, the gifts of the Jews, the gifts of the Jews, also. But again, these are from non-Jewish perspective. So obviously, there's a certain objectivity they have that is very refreshing, you know. So I'm a tatzlocha. A dank fine kumen, a dank fine kumen. Yeah, but when she comes, yes, she casts her light on the environment. Listen, we all have to know our boundaries. In other words, when somebody is lost, you know, I can reach out to them. But they have to be able to come into my arms. You know, if the donkey doesn't want to come back to me, there's only a certain amount I can do. So, right, so what I have to do is I have to remain open, with an open heart, with an open soul, with an open mind. So you need a, so you need a support system. So you need your own support system. Everyone involved in people who are lost needs their own support system because if not, you could fall apart. You need a support system. No, no. You need time for yourself. You need time of your own, you know, your own spiritual and physical rejuvenation. You must. Time when you feed your mind, your body, your soul. You must have that. It's very important. Whatever that takes, whether it's exercise, uh, walking, journaling, uh, you know, physical physical treatments that could be helpful. There's of course davening, learning, meditation, whatever it is. Your own, but your own internal well, own internal wellness is the prerequisite. If Shaul wouldn't have energy, he wouldn't be able to search for the donkeys. He has to search. You have to have the energy, and you have to also know what you could do and what you can't do. Sometimes the people who are lost are within our Daladamas. We don't have to go. Uh, we don't have to go ten years. We don't have to travel for three days. It's right there. It's in my dining room. It's in my kitchen with the husband and wife. Yeah, you see, Avramovinu he bought a plot for him and his wife. He wanted to be buried near Sarah. Right, but it represents something that there's a connection that remains. Because the connection between a husband and a wife is not only in body, it's also in soul. It's like two halves of one soul. So that connection remains. So there's a new connection. It's not a contradiction. Our souls could be connected to different people. There's still a connection. There's always a connection. But the connection is manifested in a different way. Fakert, I once saw a letter. There was a widow, and she didn't want to remarry because she felt that it's uh, it's a... Uh, it's, it's an injustice towards her first husband. It means that she didn't love him, and it's like betrayal. And I saw a letter. She was a woman. I think her husband was killed in Israel. And I saw a letter from the Lubavitcher Rebbe to her, and he wrote to her that the neshama of her husband in Ganeidin is hoping that she remarries. That's what he says. If you want to be nice to your husband, 
and loyal. That's what he wants. He doesn't want you to be lonely for the rest of your life. That's not what he wants, because he loves you. So if you want to actually be loyal to your husband, he says, try to find somebody, because that's what he wants. That's going to be a nachas ruach. For his neshama will have more peace if you're at peace. Because we have to, spiritual relationships are not like physical relationships. They don't have one dimension. We're together, we're married, the same house, whatever. A spiritual relationship happens on different frequencies. So he cares for you and he's connected to you and he wants you to remarry. And it's not a contradiction. The neshama connection that you had with the husband, that remains. On a certain level, it remains. This also answers with people ask about Chiyas HaMesim, right? Like sometimes if a, if a woman remarries second husband and then years later everybody comes back to life. So now she has two husbands, right? So I'm not talking about in a situation where, you know, she didn't want the first husband and it wasn't, you know, it was, didn't work out. She went to the second husband. So then fine, they move on. But what if it was her first husband and they were very connected? So, you know, I don't know exactly how it's going to work out. In other words, because marriage, you know, you're married to one person. But the point is that whatever connection is important could be even without a physical marriage. Huh? So they go back to the one that they that everybody will be in agreement. In other words, everybody will be in agreement that this is the best thing. It's not going to be, there's not going to be any disappointment. The first husband or the first wife, everybody's going to be... Whatever happens is going to be in a way that everybody is happy. Nobody's going to be disappointed. Hashem will orchestrate in a way that all the men and all the women will be perfectly happy. And those relationships that are real are going to be maintained because spiritual relationships are never destroyed. You can't destroy them. Not medafnish daigen vegedan. Sevetal zayin gut. So stabana sachatzlacha. Thank you for coming. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.